The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Pleased to introduce our next speaker, Ashish Mahabal. Uh, Ashish did his PhD at Ayuka in uh, Pune, India, on uh, galaxies, he tells me. Uh, but that's a while ago. He's now a, a senior research scientist, scientist, senior research scientist here at Caltech, working on um, transients, time domain astronomy, lots of things. So, Thank you. Glad to be here talking about this. So what I'm going to do is that give a broad overview of uh, classification of transients and go into specifics of a couple of methods uh, we are using. But what I'd like to do more is go into some of the challenges that we have in classifying transients and see what we can be doing during the workshop. Okay, so let me introduce many of my collaborators. Several of them are in this room. And the right-hand column is also important because we have many collaborators who have not been explicitly named here, but are in the US, Italy, and India, and lots of different. So there are many different aspects uh, to the whole work, and they all play important role in that. So let me start with uh, what a transient is. And you all may know this, but just reinforce that a transient typically is something that changes a lot in brightness in a short amount of time. And some of them, or classically most of them, will not have been seen before. So if, you are, if you're looking at a particular piece of sky, you didn't see anything. And we're talking a very small piece of sky. And then what you can see here, for instance, and this is specifically from uh, CRTS, different surveys will have different cadences, different uh, uh, types of uh, mechanisms. You'll find them depending on what kind of time frames you have. But here we have got four images that are 10 minutes apart. And you see within that that um, the other objects seem to be same in brightness, whereas you have one object that's changing a lot. And if you were to plot a light curve on the x-axis time and the magnitude of brightness on the y-axis, you find that it's doing something very static at a long uh, or a long time scale. But over a short time scale, it's gone up and come down. So that's what a transient classically is. You all know that. Just wanted to emphasize that. But what is interesting is that if you were to look at different kinds of transients, they all seem the same in optical if you're looking at them in a single band. So here are two pairs of images for three different kinds of transients. And if you're looking just optically, they are the same. But if you were able to figure out what they are, either taking a spectrum or taking more observations, taking more colors, going to more wavelengths. So there are many different aspects in which you can attack that problem. Then you start finding that there is a huge variety in them. So here is a flare star. And the previous example was something like that. Or you can have a dwarf nova where you can have a binary pair, one putting material onto the other end. That is why the brightness of one of them increases. Or you can have something like a blazar where there is a huge jet coming out, uh, traveling millions of light years coming towards you. And there are some modulations that are happening there. And that is why you see a variation in that. And what is most important is uh, rapid automated transient classification that we need. Because unless we can follow it up by looking at it uh, using other wavelengths or taking more observations in the same filter or taking a spectrum or whatever, we won't know what those objects are. And there's a lot of important physics that is in there. Only recently has it been possible to look at transients in this fashion. Because in the old times, what you would do is that you would go to the telescope, take some data, come back, and it would be a long time before it got analyzed. And here are again just emphasizing that there are many different wavelengths that can uh, come into the picture. This is a spectral energy diagram going over a very large wavelength range. And you can find, depending on what kind of object you're looking at, various different things uh, happening in different kinds of objects. So uh, getting data from all those is 
uh, very useful if you can get it. Not all of it is possible and some of the methods that I'll be talking about is trying to make more sense from less amount of data in a be as best a way as you can. And of course, colors, uh, which are just ratios in optical, are in some sense a small aspect of the set. And many studies can be done just based on colors and in our Bayesian networks, uh, that is something that we have been using extensively. Here, for instance, we have got uh, two colors uh, on the x-axis, uh, the y-axis, g minus r and r minus i. And this is where a typical stellar locus from our own galaxy lies. And these are the outliers when you look at these color spaces. And then when you look at them in more detail, you find that, oh, yes, the objects that are lying here are one kind of quasars, and the objects that are here are another kind of quasars. And when you start looking at the whole zoo of different transients and variables, it's really a mind-boggling family of things, a zoo out there, really. And you can look at them from many different points of views. There are extrinsic variables. There are intrinsic variables. So extrinsic variables will be where you think they are transients. They were not at a place right now, but they are there right now, something like an asteroid, for instance. In some sense, it is a transient because it was not there and you can see it. But there are also others which seem to be varying a lot because there is an eclipse happening, for instance. So another object comes in between you and that object. And of course, there is intrinsic variability where you've got agents where are lots of things happening at the center of galaxy or there are stars where there are actual explosions, small or large, that are happening. And down the line here, you see supernovae, for instance, which have lots of subtypes within themselves. And one good aim is to be able to go and subclassify all of these as best as you can. And again, in many cases, when you find a transient, you have very little amount of data to go on. And unless you can do something quickly about it, it's going to fade away, and you won't get to know what it really is. So the final aim really is to try to do as best a classification as you can for as many types as you can. Okay, so uh, historically we started doing a lot of this in real time with Palomar Quest data, and uh, the data, this, that particular survey is over uh, a few years ago, and the methods that we developed uh, at the time have been continuing, we have been improving on that and so on. Another method uh, that uh, gets used is image subtraction, and I'm not going to talk about that. There are many methods I'm, I will not be able to talk about. I won't also be able to talk about many methods that get used in other wavelengths, but hopefully during the workshop we'll have some discussion about that. So a simple thing that can be done where image subtraction happens is that, especially for supernovae, that's very useful. You have an old image and a new image, and when you do a subtraction, you find that there is a spot where something bright was uh, is seen now. So that's uh, a simple uh, method that uh, you can use for finding um, objects that have become brighter. But catalog domain is also a very useful thing for most other cases. For supernovae, this is, of course, the best thing. Uh, the other survey that we have been using for the last few years is the Catalina Real-Time Transient Survey. And I'll show you some examples from this later on. So there are three telescopes that are involved of uh, different sizes. But the main thing is that a large area is covered. And when you cover a large area again and again, what you can do is that differences um, in the catalogs of the uh, two epochs or more epochs that you have and figure out what are the transients. And these are some of the details. And we can come back to this uh, if we have more time later on. And of course, there are many, many surveys that are coming up uh, in the near future or are already happening. 
and also in other wavelengths. So PTF is also happening from uh, Caltech right now. SkyMapper, they have been taking a lot of data from the Southern Hemisphere. PanStars, you have been hearing more and more about that. And also there are going to be many uh, space-based missions uh, like uh, AstroSat and Gaia. And of course, LSST is going to be the mother of uh, all transient surveys as far as optical domain and ground-based is concerned. But there's also SK coming up and ASCAP, which are just the pathfinders to SK. They are going to generate a very large number of uh, transients, not just data. So it's all there, and many of these techniques are going to be uh, applicable to them as well. So uh, these are some of the CRTS uh, event detections. Uh, and you can see that there are, these are in thousands. If you look at uh, just the total OTs, you can see. So 3820, and you can do a little bit of classification based on the very initial data, because four epochs get taken. And just from those four epochs, it's an open survey, so there is no filter. But just by looking at the variation and uh, the past history for that object, you can say a little bit about what kind of uh, object it is likely to be. And we have only 4,000, really, because we have been putting the threshold to be fairly high. If we were to reduce the threshold, we'll be start finding more and more. But it won't be, it, we won't be able to classify them right now, given the machinery we have. And that is where the newer techniques are really going to be useful. And this is a typical uh, way we look for transients. So you uh, get images, convert them into catalogs, uh, look for objects that are real out of that, and then try to make meaning out of those. And this is what gets followed for most surveys, really. So this is the broad diagram of uh, event classification. And I have talked only a little bit about some of these. So this is the black box, really, where the classification occurs. The kinds of inputs that go on is a lot of contextual information. Is there a galaxy nearby? If yes, it's more likely to be a supernova. Is there a radio source nearby? If yes, it's more likely to be a blazar, and something like that. But you make it quantitative. And then only a few parameters are known for any given new transient. So what is its location? What is its flux in this particular filter or in that particular filter? Or how much has it changed in this amount of time? Something like that. And you have a lot of priors. And these become very crucial, because for the transient, you don't have prior history. So you try to figure out what kinds of objects behave in what fashion. So you try to put together colors and then uh, various other graphs and plots related to. And we'll see uh, some of them next. And then you try to combine that together and try to put out a list of probabilities or likelihoods of that particular transient being a certain kind of object. And then that hopefully will tell you what next observation to take. And using that, then you come back, feed that information back in so that you can keep on improving your classification until you have a secure classification. And these are the kinds of priors that I meant. So here you have got box plots with a delta t of one day. On the x-axis, you have got several different classes of objects. So you can clearly see that if you look at one type of object, take two observations one day apart. Take another type of object, take observations one day apart, and then just do box plots of them, just do a distribution of them. There is a variety of them. And then if you have a single observation, then just looking at this, you can attach some kind of very broad significance to that. Is it likely to be a CV? Is it likely to be a supernova, and so on? And of course, you need lots of different priors. And by combining those different priors in many different ways, you can come to a somewhat better conclusion, which drives your next observations, and so on. So here is uh, with a delta t of two days, you already see that it is different. So you can make it quantitative at different time scales. 
here it is only for the change in magnitude. Okay. So, uh, what you saw in the box plot, because it gives you only five numbers, a mean and two sigmas and outliers and so on. If you have got a dual distribution like that, it is not coming, going to come out of a box plot. So, you need to have priors that also are histograms and so on. This is again just a color histogram for RR Lyrae done at a certain delta t. And of course, uh, the light curves themselves clearly tell you what kind of objects they are likely to be. So, this is a blazar which shows uh, stochastic variability over large periods of time, whereas the CV, it also shows in some sense stochastic variability, but the nature is somewhat different from what blazars are. And again, the context information of whether you see a radio source nearby or not tells you whether it's more likely to be a blazar, whereas a supernova typically would low lie, very faint uh, background, and then suddenly it would go up and then fade in a particular manner. And variables and transients, they're really the distinction of one's perception, what you are aiming for, because all transients are really variables. It's only that your previous observations did not go deep enough to reveal what was there before. And similarly, if you are doing a very shallow survey, then uh, you are not going very deep. So all variables, you may not even find all variables. So all variables will also look like transients there. So you have to be able to clear what you mean by a variable and transient when you do various things. And we've been using Bayesian networks a lot. It's a really a good way to go, uh, mainly because it allows you to deal with data that does not exist. So there are a lot of uh, uh, gaps in the data that you have. For some objects, you may have only R-band data. For some, you may have only G-band data. For some, you may have a delta T of such and such. But by building large enough priors, what uh, Bayesian networks allow you to do is be able to deal with it very meaningfully. Secondly. What it does allow is uh, joining, uh, doing the causal connections between different observables you have, because in astronomy, as we all know, of course, you can only observe things. And even that, we can only have a limited number of resources, so we can only observe them at such and such times using such and such filters and so on. Again, basin networks are very good at uh, using that. Then there is no holdout necessary when you have small sets of data. That's a very positive thing. And domain knowledge can be incorporated in a meaningful way. So typically, this is how you would go about. You have a number of uh, observables, like uh, color or radio observation, or what the galactic latitude is. If the galactic latitude is low, then it, you know that it's more likely to be. And it's not 100%, but you know that the likelihood is greater for it to be a galactic source, an extragalactic. And here, of course, I have not shown all arrows, and there are many, many more diagrams. This is just the thing. But the good thing, again, about Bayesian networks is that by having a data set, it allows you to discover what the network should be like. And that means that you are likely to get better results out of that. And here is a, a network uh, that we have built using some of these parameters like colors from 16-inch follow-up. So CRTS discovers objects which are published in real time on the web for anyone to look at. We follow many of them uh, using the Palomar 16-inch telescope in different colors. And then we use those colors to build this Bayesian network. This, this is where the colors go. These are where incidental parameters like galactic latitude go and other observed parameters like um, whether it has a radio source nearby go there. And then that leads you to a class. And these distributions um, can be Right now, we are using some bin histograms, and actually what Jeff showed, we'd like to use something like that where uh, we are doing the binning in a certain fashion, but it'll be good to try to make it find out what the binning should be really for that kind of object. And this is a sample data set that we have. Why I'm showing the sample data set is that uh, later on, I'll be showing something about SkyAlert where you can go there and also try to get some of these numbers out and be able to run your own <laughs> methods on that. 
And it's the output of the Bayesian network, which is a class which, is, which gets fed back into, again, an open system, Skylight system, where one can take a look at that. Uh, this is just uh, Niobase. You all may be aware of that, but I just want to uh, put out a slide where what the good thing is that the X feature vector, which is made of event parameters, can be a very large one. You can have different wavelengths, you can have different colors, you can have various um, incidental parameters and so on. And whatever is missing, you can get rid of it still meaningfully and be able to attach a class to that. So again, just re-emphasizing what I had said before. And again, the importance of context, which I've mentioned, but just in a pictorial fashion. So small cutouts that you typically get from automated pipelines would typically show you this region, and we found a supernova in the arm of the antennas, and this was an old image, <coughs> and this is a new image. If you're looking at only this part, then an automated program is not going to be able to tell you that it is a supernova, because many times you also have uh, bad things happening on the CCDs, which are more like, uh, which are artifacts, and an automated program could look, uh, bring this up as uh, something like an artifact. But when you look at the bigger picture, you know that it is part of a galaxy, really. Or uh, when a supernova occurs, um, and you see a bright galaxy nearby, but there is a fainter galaxy even nearer, then which galaxy does it belong to? So by having good priors to it, you can make more sense of those things. Then the other thing um, that, that's important is characterization. Because classification is difficult, it is a hard problem, especially, again, emphasizing once again that we have very little data to start with. So it's better to start to characterize things, and you can try to use as few things that you have as possible using just the dm by dt. How much does it change uh, in brightness in a given amount of uh, time? And for a supernova, for instance, you can see that uh, it can become brighter and then fainter, or it can become brighter, or it can become fainter. But if you see an object that goes down and then goes up, it's unlikely to be a supernova. And you could use characteristics of that type uh, easily. So this is what uh, we've been into, some aspects of uh, what's being called uh, gap processing. If you have got a light curve, and then you simply take all the delta t's possible and the corresponding delta times, you can build uh, 2D plot of this nature, which tells you where it is likely to be, this particular kind of object. And then you can build a whole uh, family for that particular type. And then similarly, for other kinds of objects, you can build similar uh, families, similar plots. And then for any given transient, you can ask which of them it is likely to be. And then you can build a tree structure of this fashion. And based on what the properties it has, you can tell whether it's a supernova or not a supernova, if it is a supernova, whether it's type 1A or type 2, and so on. So you can build a very nice uh, tree structure from that. So here's uh, three pictures that we're able to build with uh, gap uh, processing of that nature. Again, just delta T and delta M. So supernova type 1A looks like this. And this from a large number of them put together. And then these points, individual points here, are from one supernova. And then when you do a quantitative comparison with the whole family, with the uh, picture that we have produced and that single light curve, then you can quantitatively say whether it's more likely to be of type 1A or type 2P or an RR light A. It's clearly not that at all, right? So, and then what you want to do is that when you have all these different kinds of uh, numbers, then you can uh, put them together and combine them. This is where what we are now doing is take uh, different uh, DMDT regions and see which DMDT region is better able to segregate two different kinds of sources. So if you see here, 
then what the next diagram really shows you is if you take only a portion that is here, then which objects have good data points in them and whether you are going to be able to use those data points to be able to segregate between those two types. Uh, what are the points on that plot? All the, differences. the previous one? Yeah. Okay. So the points that you see here, these points, they are from a single light curve, but yes, the delta T's and the delta M's that come from the single light curve. No, all of them. So that is why even for large delta t you have some point here. So each point gives rise to n minus 1 points on this. Each point in the light curve gives rise to that. So there are various uh, quantitative methods we are using including chi-square and so on. So there are six or seven that we are experimenting with right now. And uh, this for instance tells you which area should one be looking at to try to quantify that? Again, this is still initial uh, use, and this is just a particular one that tells us if you use the specific area that the blazer accuracy is good here. Oh, thank you. Blazer accuracy is good uh, in that region up to 83% and so on. Still very tentative numbers there. And then, of course, uh, we have lots of follow-up observations so that you can try to feed those back into all of those and try to figure out as early as you can what kind of uh, classification it is. And one thing that we hope to do with this is be able to get an inkling as to what should be the next observation that we should be carrying out in order to be able to best segregate them. Because for two classes, if I figure out that the delta t of such and such is good, then I better be able to schedule my next observation at the next available telescope after that corresponding delta t. Because if I'm able to do that, then I'll be able to separate them easily. So here, by, these are two different telescopes. This is my initial uh, likelihood function where it's ambiguous. These are the probabilities. And if I do the observation with this, it becomes unambiguous. Whereas if I do it with this, it still remains ambiguous. So that's not a good idea. So being able to be advised in this fashion is what uh, we are looking for. And then what we want to do, of course, is uh, try to combine these different classifiers using delta T and delta M, Bayesian networks, whatever else is out there, in a meaningful fashion so that uh, we can get, uh, get advised in a more meaningful fashion as to what the particular kind of object it is. And you try to combine different probabilities in different ways. This is, again, something that's still under construction. But what this is not, this is not a Cartesian theater where it is not as if there is a super classifier that takes all the things into consideration and tries to say this is exactly what it is. Because a single observation can really direct your uh, classification or the next observations that you want in a particular way. Just like I mentioned about the supernova. So if you are thinking something is a supernova uh, which was going down and you find that for a second time it has gone up, then it's unlikely to be a supernova. So a single source in that fashion can start directing your uh, rest of your machinery towards a different direction. And this uh, Skylight that I mentioned earlier, so we publish uh, all of our transients in real time on that with several parameters uh, that we have for everyone to look at. The other good thing with Skylight is that you can subscribe to it in very specific ways. If you are interested only in optical transients, you can uh, subscribe to a stream of optical transients. You, if you are interested in galactic wave astronomy, you can subscribe to that particular stream. If you are interested in uh, transients from SWIFT, you can do that and so on. And they get annotated when new observations come in. And the annotations can be passive annotations as to is there a radio source nearby from past observations or if there's a new radio 
follow-up that happens, whether it detected something, and so on. And all that is uh, linked into it. We also have uh, the images and uh, the location shown on worldwide telescope and in uh, Google Sky and so on. So lots of uh, information in SkyAlert that you can see there. The other interesting thing is that what you can do is that you can get information on all past transients as well. You can subscribe to a particular stream or a combination of two streams and have your own criteria. Give me only objects that are brighter than 16th magnitude or which are between 16th and 19th magnitude and so on. And then you can run your own uh, classifiers on that, your own methods on that, and you can feed that information back in. Based on a subset of information, if you learn that this is more likely to be a supernova, it is possible for you to annotate the portfolio. You, it's possible for you to annotate the information that's uh, in there right now, saying that, oh, this is more likely to be an object of such and such type. And you can do various kinds of uh, analysis based on that. For instance, uh, you can simply, dub, uh, you can figure out uh, by resolving uh, a kind of object and use something like wget or curl to get an entire uh, portfolio for that object and it'll come out as uh, say a JSON file or an XML file. A JSON file is just like an XML file but uh, more readable in some sense and using uh, most programs uh, including R and uh, MATLAB and so on you can make sense out of that. So you can directly read uh, from the URL of that object and you can figure out what are the parameters in there. You can get to specific uh, things in there and you can try to, if you wanted to do, for instance, uh, coincidence matching from a completely different wavelength, you can ask whether there is a uh, optical source known near whatever gravitational wave uh, machine has thrown out as a transient. And DAME is uh, uh, another clearinghouse where you can apply lots of uh, classifiers in there and uh, uh, more machinery is being put into DAME which gets connected with various view related things and with SkyAlert and all of our classification machinery. You can read more about it at the URL here. And Viostat, again, you can put in many statistical related uh, outputs. So if you have something of your own, you can feed that back in using something like this. And I, I won't talk uh, more on this. I'm running out of uh, time now. But we are also involved in doing various uh, pattern recognition thing using citizen science. So we are, the computers, we can teach them only so much, but if we can learn from the humans how better to do that. And Matthew leads a little bit on that, and we should uh, hear a little bit more on that, how that goes on. For instance, astrocollation, trying to combine the information uh, from humans and uh, from computers and so on. So I'll leave you with this uh, last bit about uh, how the transient classification in general would work, that you start with a small number of epochs and try to do the best you can based on that and then get more observations and try to iterate over so that until you get the best confirmed class possible. And lots of different things are being used for that. And this is where we are hoping to go with uh, classification. So I'll stop with that. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.